is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. The Meat Improv! Hello again. Uh, it's me, Jake Jabor, and this is going to be the last audio chapter I release for the time being. Um, if you've been listening, thank you very much. And if you've pre-ordered a copy, I can't tell you how grateful I am. Uh, at the time of this release, there will be seven days left in the book campaign, uh, and I have about 190 copies still to sell. So if you want to help me out, uh, if you want to read more about the improv train tour I took, or Die Hard, or Desperado, Jay-Z, breakups, funerals, um, soul-searching, uh, you can help me out and do all of that by pre-ordering a copy of my book for only $10 at inkshares.com. Search Training to Be Myself or search Jake Jabor. Okay, thanks. This is the uh, last chapter in the book from the memoir portion. Uh, I debated whether to include it, because now you'll know how the story ends, but um, I wanted to get it out there, and if the book doesn't get published, I'll still have gotten this chapter out there. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy it, and I hope it'll encourage you to order a copy and not decide that you know how the story ends, so what's the point? <laughs> okay. Thanks. Unpacking. Inventory. Swimming trunks, stamps and envelope, twine and a pocket knife, and you. I wrote the following between June 30th and February 10th, 2018. My trip ended some time ago, and yet here I am, lounging at the pool of the Roosevelt Hotel. Sometimes what feels like home is anything but. One of the greatest gifts I ever received when I was a teacher was another teacher cluing me into the easy accessibility of hotel pools during the weekdays. These pools are relatively unoccupied during the conventional work hours, but the business is still paying to keep them maintained and supervised, even when there isn't much profit to be had. This leads management to consider the feasibility of selling a $15 cocktail in the middle of a hot day if they throw in a pool and lounge chair for free. And for a teacher who has the summers off, this is ideal. So I've been buying into this combo for years now. Except this time I am a guest at the hotel. A getaway from my home and a respite from a getaway. Here I sit, trying to reclaim my equilibrium after experiencing my child serving of The Leftovers. That's the TV show about people disappearing, not the we-made-too-much-food version. And responding with an existential three-week tour. I'm a guest in my town, a stowaway in my life. The idea was always to end this story when I got back to L.A., to leave it as conclusive as I could, acknowledging the inevitability that nothing is finite, except for death and sincerity, and, ironically, it's death that keeps this narrative chugging on long after the train has pulled into the station, and sincerity that has nagged me into putting it on the page. On a Monday in the near future, Mike, my sister's dad, and my inverse stepdad, will opt to stop eating and drinking and will take a cocktail of pain medication to help him drift off to sleep and then to die. It's been hard on everyone as death by choice somehow feels so out of our control, even if it is actually more within our control. And so perhaps that's why I'm here. Being a guest at a hotel gives you the illusion of total control. Or perhaps my home is just not the sanctuary I need it to be right now. I'm not sure if it's the repetition of unusual sleeping quarters that's done it, or that everything in my apartment reminds me of my former roommate, or my ex-girlfriend, 
or my dead grandpa. Fuck, this is hard. This literary pilgrimage, this collection of essays, this examination of self, it takes its toll. The pressure builds, but when I open the valve, it seeps out. I wanted to burn clean, but the cogs are heavy, and I'm just grateful for spurts and strains. I wanted to write a book at a point when I was lost, and ended at a point when I found something. But I keep picking up breadcrumbs, somehow descending deeper into the woods. I've written approximately 98,000 words since they cremated my grandpa, but I haven't written one word to him. When he was alive, and before I moved within a two-hour drive of him, we would write each other month after month. From the time I was seven to 2007, I would keep him abreast on school and work and dating. He would do the same, substituting out school for golf, work for volunteering at a bookstore, and dating for dating. My therapist suggested that now would be a good time to write him. She said it would be a way for me to keep the relationship going. It seemed like a sensible thing to do, not because I am spiritual by nature, but because it's not like I have a lot of other options. I feel vulnerable, weak, homesick. And anyone who's gone to camp or a new school will tell you, the cure for homesickness is to reach out and touch the one place you know you're loved. So I sit at this hotel, sun on my face, pool at my feet, and I write my grandpa. Dear Grandpa, you died over a year ago. Passed away in your sleep because of your refusal to eat. There's something profound about death by starvation for someone who once dropped off fresh baguettes to every floor of their apartment building in France. Nourishment was your weapon of choice. Powerful and deadly. I miss you every day. You're in my dreams. Sometimes you're not dead, or sometimes you're back from the dead. But we're all okay with it, because it's you, and we love you. The most vivid dream came just days after your death. You were sitting at the dining room table at the Del Mar Beach Club, where you used to live, and you said I had honest grit. It felt like a variation of true grit, but I tried to interpret it knowing what I know about you. At your funeral, an old friend of yours told an anecdote about your time as an ROTC teacher. Your class came in number one in some national ranking. There was no formal recognition of this, and that was unacceptable to you. You didn't want their feet to go unacknowledged, so you had certificates custom-made and framed. Your friend said that was typical of you, to make sure people got recognized. I choose to think that in my dream you were saying that my grit, or my ability to persist or feel, is grounded in the honesty of the moment. That you saw me as someone who would, in your likeness, care for others, even when it's hard. That being honest means taking care of those around you, because it's the most honest thing we can do. It's not easy, or fun, or even satisfying all the time. But it's honest. To look after others. And maybe it's delusional to think I'm doing that. But at the least, it's something I'd like to aspire to. So thank you. I am doing well since you passed. Em and I broke up, but I, and hopefully she, are on paths to good health. I no longer teach. I am coaching improv full-time, and it brings me lots of joy, even if not a lot of anything else. I do it out of my apartment, and I do it from your rocking chair. I don't know that I followed in your advice to find a mentor and to work hard and move up the ranks. But I try to work hard and appreciate the work of others. I think you'd be proud of what I'm doing. You were always proud of who I was. Not an easy thing to do, to separate someone from their actions, but you did. And in that, you gave me a feeling of self-worth. It's something I've tried to emulate and will continue to pass on. I'm looking after Dad as best I can, and he after me as best he can. He is sad. We both are. But it's okay. We're much sadder than we would have been if you had passed ten years earlier. That's the cost of getting to know someone. 
I'm happy to pay it. I have your teapot. I have a number of your things, most more unique than the pot. There's nothing special about it except that it was yours. It's stainless steel and it sits on my stove as it used to sit on yours. I can recall it on the stove in your first house on Cozumel Court, with two bedrooms and a garage and a patio. I recall it on the stove in your apartment in the graveyard with lights, as you called it. With your two bedrooms, your covered parking spot, and your rented storage locker, there was your unexceptional teapot. I remember it on your stove in your studio with no bedrooms, no dining room, just a bed, a bathroom, and a small kitchen. Every couple of years, for the last ten years of your life, you parsed down, but you kept the teapot, because while you may not need a garage or storage or room for guests, you need hot water. We all do. And so in the morning, I boil water for my coffee. I am alone in the kitchen with your teapot, and I think of all the times you were alone in your kitchens with the same teapot. I am mostly happy alone, but I think of how you must have not been, because you worked hard to have a family and keep them close. So hard, in fact, that I didn't have to work at all for mine. They were just there when I got here. I'm sure I take them for granted, and I worry someday I will be alone, not by choice, and I will be sad. But I have your teapot, and knowing that it's kept us both company when our home is empty comforts me. It makes me feel closer to you. So on mornings when I boil water for my coffee, and I pour it into a cup with your name on it, I'm reminded of something you said. Keep your eye upon the donut, and not upon the hole. And I realize I'm not drinking alone. I'm drinking with you. Cheers, Grandpa. And the fever breaks. Shortly after the letter, life falls back into place. First, I get some sleep. Then I teach improv. I eat meals at home and occasionally have a night out. I develop a comfortable, if not ideal, living situation with a roommate who indulges me in my quiet time. I fly to Colorado to see my dad. I go up north with my sisters who are visiting with their dad. I start dating someone who makes me laugh and considers me and challenges me. It's true what Jeff Goldblum says. Life finds a way. I was far from extinct, fortunate not to be experiencing homelessness or outright defeat, but my grief led me to flee, which led me to be depleted, which led me adrift. And now, now I'm pretty much back on my bullshit. Not settled, closer to broke than bliss, but better. Then Mike dies. He dies before the ball drops on 2017. I speak at his memorial, and just like when I spoke at my grandpa's, I get overcome with nerves. I become self-conscious that wanting to speak has more to do with me than with the deceased or the grieving. In fact, I would have preferred not to speak at either service, except I felt I owed it to both men to tell them what they meant to me. And in that, I reach my destination. Mike gave no fucks what you thought of him, but he gave every fuck to think about you. He wasn't judgmental, but curious. Deeply interested, and it didn't matter what you were like or what you were into. He would talk to you about it because, and this is just me speculating, he wasn't concerned with who he was. He was interested in who you were. My grandpa wasn't that different. He took a more malleable approach. He was a spiritual father to my uncle, a fierce debater to my father, a lover of cards and games to my cousins, and to me, he was quiet company. He too was not interested in the impression he left on you, but in nourishing the relationship you had with him. I once helped him and his girlfriend pick up a flat-screen television from the Marine Base Shopping Center. He and his girlfriend would often call on me to drive them someplace or set up the answering machine or carrying cat litter, innocuous errands that made me feel important. On this occasion, I stuffed the TV in my trunk, but it would not fit. We took our chances and began the drive back to their retirement village. 
On the Interstate 5, the trunk popped open and it slammed up and down on the TV box. We pulled over to the side of the highway. I was visibly nervous and sweating from my forehead and behind my ears, worried that the TV would be damaged or that it would damage my car or that we would get a ticket. My grandpa, at 92, took a spool of twine out of his pocket along with a small pocket knife. He cut a length of rope and tied it to the trunk hatch and to some hooks in my trunk. He said not to worry, that we'd be fine, and he put a calm hand on my shoulder. I suppose when your past includes being in World War II, discount shopping does not sound the same alarms as a Nazi invasion. At the start of our mission, I remember foolishly thinking I was the hero, come to save the day. But in truth, and of course, it was my grandpa who wore the cape. I don't know about God and footprints in the sand, but I know my grandpa flew me out of more than one crumbling building. Mike and Nick taught me it, life, doesn't require a sense of self. Life is short and worrying about yourself is not worth the trouble. Focus on others, who they are, and what you can do for them. That's bang for your buck. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Grandpa. By train, by plane, by rental car, I'm no closer to figuring out who I am. And that's okay. I've got my whole life to get to know me. There's a better use for my time. It's getting to know you.